Hello, my friends. This is Pastor Christopher Alam at home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I trust you are all doing well and are blessed. We are talking about the subject of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And, and yesterday we talked about what Jesus taught on the Holy Spirit. And today we're going into another, you know, the next uh, point of the subject. And that is, I'm going to talk about how Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, but he ties the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the Great Commission. But before I go into that, I would like to share um, another story with you, like I have done all the time. And this one is from Sweden. I, um, I was preaching in the cathedral in Luleå, and um, I called people forward for prayer. I mean, this is a Lutheran, one of those old, archaic, really fancy, you know, spectacular, historical uh, Lutheran cathedral. And so uh, we, were, we were doing meetings there and a lot of people came forward for prayer. And there was this lady, she was completely blind. And, you know, I was young and inexperienced. So uh, I was going to, you know, so I asked the lady what was wrong. She says, I'm completely blind. I cannot see. I said, okay, I'm going to pray for you. So she said, please do. So I, before I could put my hands on her, she began to shout at the time, uh, at the top of her voice. And her name was Elsa, I'll never forget this. And she was saying in Swedish, she was shouting, Elsa! No, no, I'm sorry. She said, Jesus, there Elsa Samrupar! Jesus, there Elsa Samrupar! And that is, Jesus, this is Elsa calling you! Jesus, this is Elsa calling you! And I said, shh, let me pray for you. Shh, look me for bay for them. That means, shh, please let me pray for you. But when I tried to shush her down to just quieten her, she just kept on screaming. And she said, Jesus, this is Elsa calling you. Jesus, this is Elsa crying out to you. And I said, shh, lady, let, let me pray for you. And she, but she was, you know, she had her hands in there. Jesus, this is Elsa calling you. And the next thing she says, I can see, I can see, I can see. I said, no, no, I'm going to pray for you first. She said, no, you don't have to pray for me. I can see, I can see perfectly. And she had a relatives with her and she said, oh, I can see you and I can see you. She began to call them out by name and the people, I mean, people just burst into joy and her relatives were crying and praising God and she was praising God and she, she kind of hugged me and <laughs> I, you know, it, totally threw me off because she was just calling out to Jesus, Jesus, you know, in a very personal way, Jesus, this is Elsa that is calling you. And, uh, and I, uh, and, you know, and I was flustered because I was trying to pray for her. And she, she was so busy crying that, you know, and, and, and then the next thing she can see, and uh, it really threw me off. But, you know, I came back, I, I came back home that evening we were staying with Britta's parents, you know, they're from there. So I came back home that evening and I was, I thought of that, of blind Bartimaeus, how he cried out. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, it was something, it was raw and it was personal. Because sometimes we make prayer a ritual, a ritualistic thing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that we do. And then, you know, we, we have this formal ritualistic way. This is how you pray. And so we pray. But uh, there is something about prayer 
is the authenticity, the, when, when it is a raw uh, cry from the heart of a person calling out to Jesus. And I believe God loves that. God, God, I mean, this woman, she's completely blind. And all she did was cry out. She said, Jesus, this is Elsa calling you. I mean, Jesus is in heaven. How can he say no? I mean, how can he even deny or ignore such a cry coming from a person's heart? And instantly she received perfect and total sight. It happened in front of all those people, the full cathedral, everybody saw it. So I want to encourage you. God wants to hear the cry of your heart, the pure, raw, emotional cry of your heart. That is authentic, that is real, and that's the kind of thing that God hears and God does miracles. Praise God, hallelujah. Well, anyway, let's go to how Jesus uh, promises the Holy Spirit, but he ties the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the Great Commission. And then it says here, so I'm reading from chapter one in the book of Acts, Acts uh, chapter one, verses four to nine. It says, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Amen. So what happened was that you know, Jesus was, uh, was to, together with the disciples and he commanded them. And this was the commandment. The command was, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And that's my first point, is that according to verse 4 and verse, verse 5, Jesus commanded them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the baptism with the Holy Spirit with the utterance in other tongues, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues, it is not an option. It is, it is an imperative. It is a commandment. Jesus didn't suggest to them. He didn't request them. He didn't give them a choice. He commanded them, don't go anywhere, but wait in Jerusalem until you, uh, you receive the Holy Spirit, until you receive the promise of the Father, which I have spoken about. And then he says, like John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had spoken to them about it. And now he's commanding them, listen, that thing which I talk about, I talked about, stay in Jerusalem until you receive it. Okay. Now, then it says here, verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So when Jesus talked about, you know, they shall be endued with power from on high, they shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, their response was, 
Oh, is that when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, I, for years, I used to think, where are they coming from? I mean, what kind of response is that? Jesus is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're talking about restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And I, I you know, I was pretty clueless for years because I thought these two things were so far apart. I don't know why they are talking about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel when Jesus talks about the, about, about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I, <coughs> I'm sorry, I did some study in history and then it suddenly dawned on me why they responded that way. Now, listen to this. This is, I'm quoting from history. You see, when Jesus came to the scene, at that time, the Israelites had been under foreign occupation for uh, almost four centuries, almost 400 years. Uh, just short of 400 years, they had been under foreign occupation. Now, the Israelites were uh, a proud nation. They knew that they were God's people. They knew that they had a covenant with God. They knew they were special and unique in that sense. They also knew that they were aware of the fact that the law of God was given through them and that the prophets, all the prophets who prophesied, they were from Israel. So, you know, they, they, they knew that they were God's people. They were unique. And, and, and so they carried this with pride. And they also looked down disdainfully at people of other nations. It was just who they were. And they had their own kingdom and all that. But now what has happened is that for almost four centuries, they had been without their kingdom and they had been under foreign occupation. And if you look at the foreign occupations, first came the Babylonians, the Babylonians came and occupied them. And after the Babylonians came the Seleucid Greeks. Now, the, the, the Greeks were unique in the sense that the Greeks had a very strong cultural and linguistic heritage. So wherever they went, they left their cultural and linguistic heritage behind to the point that when the books of the New Testament were first written, the Greeks had been gone for well over a century. But their linguistic imprint was so strong that... Uh, uh, when the writers of the books of the New Testament, whose religious language was Hebrew, but who spoke Aramaic in their everyday, as their everyday language, when they wrote down the books of the New Testament, they wrote the books in classical Greek. So, that, so that's the Greek heritage. So what happened was this, that uh, the Babylonians came, and then after the Babylonians left, you know, then came the Greeks, and uh, then after the Greeks came the Romans and the Romans were, I mean, they were bad. They were all, all these occupier, occupying powers were bad. But when Jesus came to the scene, when he, he came to this earth, at that time, they were under Roman occupation and the Roman, you know, the Romans used to summarily execute people, kill people for small, uh, minor uh, infringements. And they had a taxation system that was extortionist. Uh, that was extortion and that's why the people hated the tax collectors because the tax collectors were fellow Jews who used to extort taxes on the people and pass on the taxes to the Romans plus keep a hefty commission for themselves so the more they extracted as taxes the more they had for themselves and they were generally hated and all that and during these um, almost four centuries there had been many uprising against 
these occupying powers. But all these, all these uprisings had been brutally crushed, except there was one man called Judas Maccabeus, who is, Judas Maccabeus is still a folk hero in Israel. He had some limited success in that he managed to liberate a chunk of territory that he called the Hasmonean Kingdom because he was from the Hasmonean dynasty and uh, his brother, his younger brother was the first king of the, uh, of the Hasmonean Kingdom. And of course, when the Romans came, they destroyed that also. That This Hasmonean Kingdom didn't last long. But anyway, so here comes Jesus. Now, during these four centuries, the Jews had developed this uh, attitude. And this shows us that you know, we as people, we tend to interpret scriptures through the prism uh, of our uh, circumstances and our experiences. So by, that, by the time Jesus came, the Jews began to think that every time they read one of the messianic scriptures in the Old Testament, they began to uh, think or believe that the Messiah would be some kind of military figure who was going to lead the next uprising and throw the, you know, the Romans out and restore the kingdom again. And so here comes Jesus and uh, he suited the bill perfectly because he had two things that made him unique. The first thing was that nobody had ever spoken as he spoke. When he spoke, it gripped the hearts of men. Plus, when he spoke, demons would come out of people. I mean, uh, you know, his words were with power. That was the first thing. His words were with power. The second thing that was unique about him was that he had miracles. I mean, he raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He did miracles. They'd never seen anything like it before. So there were people who began to follow him around and they wanted him to be their king to lead the next uprising. And you know that when he uh, performed that famous miracle that's called the feeding of the 5,000, incidentally, there were more than 5,000 people fed there because one of the gospels says there were 5,000 men plus women and children. And <clears throat> if you look at the demographics, the size of family in those days, uh, historians estimate there should have been at least 20,000 people if you include the women and the children who were fed using five loaves of bread and two small fishes. And so after that miracle, it says the people tried to make Jesus their king by force. And, but he was not interested in being their king. Not only that, he seemed to be totally oblivious to that which was going around him because although the Jews were so badly oppressed, his own people were so badly oppressed by the Romans and they were, they had lost all their freedoms and they, you know, they didn't have any human rights. But do you know that during his three and a half years of ministry, Jesus never made one single uh, uh, political statement against the Romans. In fact, the closest he ever came to making a political statement was when they gave him a coin and they said, uh, should we, no, they, they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. And he said, whose inscription is this on the coin? Whose picture is on the coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar. Then Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And so, you know, that was the closest he ever came to making a political statement. And so, so I can imagine the frustration of those people because they wanted him to be their king, but he was not interested. In fact, not only that, he seemed to be totally oblivious to what that was 
which was going on. And he instead, he talked about, uh, about the coming age, about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And, and, you know, he talked about other things. And then the next thing, you know, he goes and dies on the cross. And when he dies on the cross, their hopes and dreams die with him. But Jesus made the ultimate comeback. He rose up from the dead on the third day. And uh, when he came back, he began to, after his resurrection, he began to, he was, he was with them for 40 days. And the Bible says he taught them many things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then now comes the last day. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Comes the last day and he gathers his disciples together and he tells them, he says, now listen, don't leave Jerusalem, but stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father because John immersed with water. He baptized in water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So now when he said that, I believe they thought, oh, he's finally got it. So they said, oh, Jesus, is that when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he dashed their hopes one last time by, say, by, by saying this in verse 7. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, let us pause here for a while. He dashed their hopes by saying, you don't know the times and the seasons that the father has decided, you know, it is in his power. But when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. So now he's talking about the coming of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of God, the spirit of God is going to come upon you. And that for them was huge because they were Jews and Jews for them, the very concept of, of God and man having any kind of fellowship or intimacy was beyond their scope. Jews couldn't even pronounce the name of God by their lips because God was so far, so distant, so holy and so far removed from them. But now he's saying the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. Now, what he's talking about, he's saying that the Holy Ghost, the third person of the divine trinity is going to come upon you. Now, that is, uh, you know, that is huge when you think of it, that not only is the Holy Ghost going to come, but he's going to come upon you. Now, for you and me who live 2000 years after these words have been spoken, the Holy Ghost is already here. In fact, he is on this earth. He has been here for uh, for 2000 years. But the question is what I want to tell you, has he come upon you? And if he has come upon you, how deep is your depth of surrender? How much have you surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Because it is of utmost importance that we surrender, yield totally to the Holy Spirit. And when I say yield to the Holy Spirit, I don't mean yeah, that you are in a service and you feel like, oh, the Holy Ghost has come and you run and shout and dance or whatever, scream or laugh. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a yielding of your life, a total surrender of your life, not just for a service, but for life, a full surrender of your life because, because the level of power in your life will depend upon the depth of surrender.
The level of the power of God upon your life depends entirely upon the depth of your surrender. So Jesus says, when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, you shall receive power. And that Greek word for power is the word dynamis. And dynamis in today's language would mean explosive power or God's brute force, miracle working power. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And that word power, dynamis, is the same word used in Mark chapter 5 when the woman with the issue of blood came from behind and touched Jesus. And Jesus said, I felt virtue go from me. You know, he said, or power, I felt power go from me. It's the same word that is used there. He said, I felt somebody touched me because I felt dynamis go from me. So what Jesus was telling the disciples is that, listen, do you remember when that woman with the issue of blood touched me? What he's saying is that that same divine substance that flowed from me when she touched my garment and healed her, that you are going to receive that same divine substance when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. Hallelujah. And then it tells them why they shall have this power. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Now, a witness is somebody, the word witness actually means somebody who can give evidence in court. Someone who is an eyewitness. One, not by hearsay, but one who is an eyewitness who can give evidence in court. And when we have experienced the Holy Spirit, we experience that Jesus Christ is no longer dead, but he's alive and we can give evidence to the people that Jesus Christ is alive through signs, wonders and miracles. Because listen, a dead Jesus cannot do any miracles, but a living Jesus, he does the same things today that he did in the days of the Gospels. 2000 years ago, because when Jesus walked on this earth, all the miracles he did in that day, he does the very same things today if he's alive. So we are called to give evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is alive. And that is why the Holy Ghost comes upon us and God's anoints us with the power, the fire of the Holy Ghost so that we can go out and give evidence to the world that Jesus is alive. Like it is said about the apostles in the book of Acts, that with great power, they gave testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. They gave evidence that Jesus Christ is risen and he's alive today and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So we are called to be, as somebody said, proof producers evidence givers that Jesus Christ is alive. So he says, you shall give, you shall be my witnesses. We shall give evidence providers of the resurrection and the life of Jesus. He says, then he tells us where he says in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem was their home turf. That, that, that was where they were. And uh, Judea, that was the greater territory of the Jews, now still their own people. But then he says Samaria. Now the Samaritans, they were considered the enemy. You know, remember when Jesus went to Samaria and talked to the Samaritan woman, her first response was, why are you even talking to me? Because your people and my people have nothing to do with each other. 
and then uh, with one another and he says you worship in Jerusalem we worship on this mountain so we are poles apart but that's when Jesus began to give words of knowledge through the Holy Spirit about her and she got convicted. She went and told everybody that here's a man. He must be a prophet of God. And then Jesus was welcomed into Samaria and everybody believed in him. So my point is that we are called to give evidence not only to our own people, but to those of another religion and those uh, uh, those who we consider as our enemies. Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to be a bit bold and say this. Many Christians in America, they think like Americans first and Christians second, because whoever the government considers the America as, as the enemies of America, Christians in America think of those people as their enemies. We shouldn't think that way because America may have enemies, but as Christians, we have no enemies. We, we view every man, woman and child on this earth as somebody who's loved by God, who Jesus, dries, uh, who Jesus died for. And that is our ethos. The, that is our core values. Those are the things that make us tick. Those are the things that that keep us alive because we 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 don't care what nationality we are and that we live in America. We are Americans and I don't care who the president of the United States says is our enemies. What care matters to me is what the Bible says about those people who who the United States considers our enemies. And that's why I can never beat war drums against any nation, but I will blow the salvation trumpet. I will never beat war drums, but I will blow the salvation trumpet, be it for the Iranians, the Arabs or or whoever it is out there or the Chinese or the Russians, all these people, all these nations, people are too busy hating one another, but we are called to preach the gospel to every creature. We are called to go to those who are our Samaritans and preach the gospel to them and give evidence to them that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. That is the ethos of the gospel. That is what the gospel is all about. And when we embrace that, that is when we put the gospel before nationalism. Uh, we put the cross before the flag. Amen. Praise God. So, well, if I stepped on your toes, I don't apologize. You got your toes in the wrong place and you maybe need to rethink sometimes, you know, as as Christians, uh, we, we, we get so nationalistic and patriotic that we can go so far out. We are to love our country, but I think sometimes we can go get so carried away by these winds that blow through society that we forget who we really are and who we really are. We are, we are bearers of the gospel. We uphold the cross of Jesus and we preach the gospel both to our nation and to every other nation, no matter who they are, because Jesus Christ gave his life and died for all. So these are the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended to heaven. And verse nine says, when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and the cloud received him out of their sight. So, so that is, this is where we see that the commission to preach the gospel, uh, I mean, sorry, yeah, is tied to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are not two separate things, but these are two things that go hand in hand. You shall receive power that when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Hallelujah. 
not only in your home turf, but in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even beyond Samaria to the ends of the earth. Doesn't matter where you go, how far you go out there. If there is sinners, if there are sinners out there, God says you have to preach the gospel to them. And that is why I have baptized you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That is why I have called you. That is why I have anointed you. Beloved, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the reason, the purpose, it is all about souls. Amen. We will carry on more. I'm getting all excited. Always get fired up when I talk about souls, but we're going to carry on more of this tomorrow. But let's pray together. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that each one be full of the Holy Ghost and be strong soul winners. Father, harvest workers, harvest workers and harvesters. Give each one of them a great harvest of souls and miracles in the name of Jesus. I pray for their homes, Father, that you, Father, you said you'd bless our food and water, turn, turn every sickness and disease and infirmity away from us. I pray for their finances, for peace and love and joy in their homes. Let their hearts be full of your love, of your joy for this lost and broken heart, uh, of this, for this lost and broken world. And we thank you for this glorious gospel that you have entrusted us with. And we thank you for this wonderful baptism with the Holy Ghost in Jesus name. Amen. That's it, my friend. We will continue tomorrow.